1: It's Tuesday, May 23rd, 2023, the 853rd day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. So before we get started with some of the more current stuff, I just wanted to highlight this little video. A supercut was compiled. A guy named Michael P. Sanger put it out on Twitter. This is a supercut of some of the propaganda and hysteria that was communicated to us by our public health experts, our media, comedians, entertainers our politicians throughout 2020, 2021, and 2022. All the COVID hysteria. How no one will be safe until everyone is safe. And how the only way to be safe is to get vaccinated. And it really is incredible to watch this a couple years later, knowing that it all happened while it happened. A lot of these clips are things that you've seen or heard before. But sometimes it's helpful to just hear it all together to remember how ridiculous all of this was and how coordinated it was this video is like 12 minutes long i'm just going to play a couple of minutes of it you'll see exactly what i mean we want to make sure that people can discern the truth from the misinformation and we want to make sure that everyone understands that no one's safe till everyone's safe no one is safe no one is safe no one, no one is safe. safe no one is safe uh, no one is safe one is no one is
0: safe. Nobody is safe. This is a post-9/11 axiom. Safer, but not yet safe. No one is safe. No one is safe. No one is safe. No one is safe from COVID-19 until everyone is safe. If the whole world isn't safe, none of us are safe. No one is safe. No one is safe. Nobody is safe until we're all safe. Health experts have been saying nobody is safe. Nobody is safe until everybody is safe. Nobody is safe. The science is clear. None of us are safe. There is no safety. No one is safe. No one is safe. want to safe. no one is safe until everyone is safe. No one. Nobody is safe. Nobody is safe. No one. We'll never be safe until we're all safe. We are never going to be safe. 99.5% of people are safe and we'll survive covid-19. Uh
1: the only positive thing out of this is we should be able to manufacture a lot of vaccines and
0: nobody will be safe if not everybody is vaccinated. You don't have a choice. As long as not everybody is vaccinated nobody, nobody will be safe. Normalcy only returns when we've largely vaccinated the entire global population. So get the fucking vaccine. You need to get vaccinated and if you don't, you are going to die. I know you're vaccinated. You're the smart ones, but you know there's people out there who aren't listening to God and what God wants. You know who they are. The unvaccinated people. My message to unvaccinated Americans is this. If you are the unvaccinated, you are the problem. You're the f Problem. Condemn them? Shame them? Blame them? The only people that you can blame are the unvaccinated. Frankly, we can't trust the unvaccinated. They should not be part of polite society. Them. Lunatics who won't take COVID vaccines. Walking around lawfully unvaccinated. That's psychotic. If you're willing to walk among us unvaccinated, you are an enemy. You have no right not to be vaccinated. You don't have the right to contaminate someone You else. can't go around pointing a gun in somebody's face, which is what it is when people are unvaccinated.
1: They are all idiots and losers. This is a real movement in this country against the unvaccinated. Jennifer
0: Aniston is cutting non-vaccinated people out of her life. The unrepentant, unvaccinated. They should
1: be removed from
0: the hospital. Those who refuse to be vaccinated should be denied health care. Vaccinated
1: person having a heart attack? Yes, come right on in. We'll take care of you. Unvaccinated guy. Rest in peace, Wheezy. You're... <laughs> Some
0: doctors are saying they'll refuse treatment for people who choose not to get the shot. Why are hospital and ICU resources going to them? Morons. Who will not get the shot. The unvaccinated clowns. Idiots who think that they can do their own research. Don't do any
1: of your own research. Doing your own research is associated with conspiracy
0: theory circles.
1: This go-it-alone approach, doing your own research. That can have serious consequences. You should get prison time for even questioning the vaccines. Can we all stop saying, I need to do my own research? That phrase, do your own research, four words. Four little words that are hurting America. Doing your own research hurts America. Everybody has a supercomputer in their hand that empowers them to do their own research, and that's the problem. You must not do your own research. Oh, I need to do my own research. I don't understand what that means. I'm doing my own research. You can't do your own research unless you're a scientist. Don't oh, do your own research. research. Maybe you've told yourself you're playing it safe. You just want to wait and see since this is a new vaccine. No.
0: Throw the f up and get the vaccine.
1: Unvaccinated. Spread the virus. Get the
0: vaccine, you dope. Don't be a f-
1: Ah, the good old days when everyone was trusting the experts. The person who put that video together, by the way, is named Matt Orphalea. Just consider how weird that period was. Doing your own research. Was something that the media and major newspapers, Hollywood celebrities, politicians, they told us that that was a terrible idea. Trying to figure out what you should do on your own is unacceptable. That's for stupid people. Smart people know that you can trust the experts. In fact, that's what it means to be smart. That's what it means to be educated. Once you're educated, you know how to choose which authorities to blindly trust. That's what it means to be a serious person. You know who automatically the other serious people are. And once you have located those serious people, then they become a source of authority, an authoritative voice. And once you've established that, it behooves every serious person to immediately trust those people. And never check for themselves, assuming that the other serious people, the experts in a given field, that they have checked, that they're telling the truth, they would never lie, just trust them. Ah, the good old days. Now we're gonna get started with the decision coming down in Kerry Lake's trial in Maricopa County. But before that, I wanna take a moment and just hear something that Representative Squad member, Pramila Jayapal said today at the Capitol.
0: I think there would be a huge backlash from our entire uh, House Democratic you know, caucus, certainly the progressives, but also in the streets. You know, I mean, I think that this is it's important that we don't take steps back from the very strong agenda that the president himself shepherded and led over the last two years.
1: A huge backlash from our entire Democrat caucus, but also in the streets. Now, what is she talking about? She's talking about the debt ceiling. They are planning on street action over the debt ceiling. They're going to call out BLM Antifa over the debt ceiling. The Republicans have already passed a bill. Joe Biden doesn't want to negotiate. Now he's been forced into some level of negotiations. They are still telling the country that everything is going to fall apart in one week. Like next Thursday, if the Republicans don't back down from their demands and also, I guess, rescind the bill they already passed that raises the debt ceiling. And so to prevent that, I guess they're planning on kicking off another summer of love. And the timing couldn't be better because Thursday, of course, is St. George's Day, George Floyd Day. The third anniversary of George Floyd dying from a fentanyl overdose while being restrained by a policeman's knee after committing crimes as he had done throughout his life. I'm starting to think that we need to know George Floyd's middle name and always call him by three names so that he seems like a renowned civil rights champion rather than a career criminal who once robbed a pregnant woman and held a gun to her belly. So from now on, it's George Perry Floyd Jr. We can start calling him GPF Jr. We'll have George Perry Floyd Day. Maybe we can all post black squares on Instagram in commemoration of when the villagers attempted to solve racism by posting black squares on Instagram. Who knows? Maybe we'll have a George Floyd's day special and recall all of the aspects of that story that made absolutely no sense were blatant lies and hypocrisy and made our country far, far worse. And speaking of making our country far, far worse, Judge Peter Thompson in Arizona, in Maricopa County, has dismissed Kerry Lake's lawsuit. Now, before you freak out, this is something we've talked about plenty. Regardless of the decision that came down in this case, that decision would be appealed. Carrie Lake says she has a big announcement for tomorrow. I imagine that announcement is probably the appeal of this case, and we will see what their plan is. If the plan is to keep going, which it always has been, and which I assume they will keep doing, then This decision really isn't that big of a deal. All they did was take the case back down to a lower court and iron out one of these issues. Get the court on record as to what the law says specifically. Present the evidence to the public, which is exactly what happened. So let's go through this decision a bit. And rather than reading a summary, let's just go to the judge's own words. The judge writes on the legal standard. Plaintiff brings a claim of misconduct under Arizona Revised Statute 16-672A1. She must prove by clear and convincing evidence, quote, misconduct on the part of election boards or any members thereof in any of the counties of the state or on the part of any officer making or participating in a canvas for a state election. She must prove that this misconduct affected the result of the election and she must do so by a competent mathematical basis, not simply an untethered assertion of uncertainty. As narrowed by plaintiff at argument and in her response to the motion to dismiss, plaintiff brings a claim under Reyes versus Cumming. The court understands this to be a purposeful concession. Rather than trying to cast doubt on a specific number of ballots a Herculean evidentiary endeavor in these circumstances, she attempts to prove that the signature review process for Maricopa County was not conducted pursuant to Arizona Revised Statute Section 16-550A or the EPM. And the EPM, if I'm not mistaken, is Election Procedures Manual. Now, to pause for a second, the judge notes that it is a Herculean evidentiary endeavor in these circumstances to try to cast doubt on a specific number of ballots. And I wonder what the reason he's saying that might be. I'm guessing that it's because she doesn't have access to the ballots because they would actually have to go through and compare the signatures. We've seen examples of signatures not matching at all. We know the signature matching process was completed each time for hundreds of thousands of ballots in under three seconds. But as we discussed last week, the defense's case was that it doesn't matter how the review was done. That's not the standard according to Arizona law. And that's what the judge agreed with. But continuing with the judge's opinion, more to the point, she was obligated to prove that the process for submitting and processing early ballots did not occur. To do so would prove misconduct pursuant to statute. Whether this would require a setting aside of the election outright under statute or a proportional reduction followed by a confirmation or setting aside under grounds versus law is unclear. In any event, crafting an appropriate remedy is unnecessary. The evidence the court received does not support plaintiff's remaining claim. First, Ms. Oneg testimony makes abundantly clear that Level 1 and Level 2 signature review did take place in some fashion. She expressed concern that this review was done hastily and probably not as thoroughly as she would have liked, but it was done. Mr. Meyer's testimony similarly revealed that he participated in both a Level 1 review and curing process. Mr. Valenzuela testified that four levels of signature verification took place, two levels of verification per se and two levels of auditing. And we know how good the audits are. The result was the timely verification and or curing of about 1.4 million voter signatures. So according to the judge in this decision, the process was carried out to completion. And the fact that the process was completed means that the process was good enough. Mr. Valenzuela's testimony, elicited by both parties, is most helpful to the court and the most credible. This is not merely for reasons of honesty. The court makes no finding of dishonesty by any witness and commends those signature reviewers who stepped forward to critique the process as they understood it. While Ms. Onigkeit and Mr. Myers have ground-level experience with signature review, Mr. Valenzuela provided the court with both a hands-on view based on the 1,600 signatures reviewed by him personally in November 2022, and a broad overview of the entire process based on his 33 years of experience. It's worth noting that when Ray Valenzuela himself does those signature reviews, he ends up rejecting 19% of them, whereas Maricopa County in the 2022 midterm accepted well over 99% of the signatures that came in. And again, we're doing so in less than three seconds of review for 274,000 ballots. As he testified, the human element of signature review consisted of 153 level one reviewers, 43 level two reviewers and two ongoing audits. This evidence is in its own right, clear indicia that the comparative process was undertaken in compliance with the statute putting us outside the scope of Reyes. There is clear and convincing evidence that the elections process for the November 8th, 2022 general election did comply with Arizona Revised Statute 16-550 and that there was no misconduct in the process to support a claim under Arizona Revised Statute 16-672. At trial, plaintiff's case attempted to overcome the barriers created by the bar to her complaints about the process that could have been brought before trial but were not. She conceded that she was not challenging signature matches for any individual ballots by making a Reyes claim. Specifically, plaintiff's response to the motion to dismiss argues, Maricopa violated Arizona Revised statute sixteen five fifty and did not and could not Perform signature verification given the influx of 1.3 million ballots during the voting period for the November 2022 general election. The complaint sufficiently alleges this process was not followed by MCEC because in the 2022 election, Maricopa County officials, instead of attempting to cure ballots, systematically pushed mismatched ballots through for tabulation without following the required procedures. Plaintiff's evidence and arguments do not clear the bar. Plaintiff's strategy shifted shortly thereafter to attempting to prove that time per signature verification per signature is deficient. Plaintiff argues that 274,000 signatures or so were compared in less than two seconds. Plaintiff then zeroes in on 70,000, the number of ballots that she claims were given less than one second of comparison. Plaintiff argues that this is so deficient for signature comparison that it amounts to no process at all. Accepting that argument would require the court to rewrite not only the election procedures manual, but Arizona law to insert a minimum time for signature verification and specify the variables to be considered in the process. So the judge is basically saying, you came to me making the argument that the signature verification process was not done according to statute, all you are proving is that you don't think it was done in a manner that would be effective, but it is not the court's responsibility to decide on the manner of the election process. Now, that in itself, in principle, is not a wholly ridiculous argument. The judge is not responsible for determining whether or not the law's passed by the legislature and the procedures put into place are sufficient or not. The judge is not there to make a qualitative judgment about what another branch of the government has put in place, only whether or not in this instance, the process as enacted and completed comports with the rules as written. Plaintiff asks the court to interpret the word compare in Arizona Revised Statute 16550 to require the court to engage in a substantive weighing of whether Maricopa's signature verification process, as implemented, met some analytical baseline. But there are several problems with this. First, no such baseline appears in Section 16550. Not one second, not three seconds, and not six seconds. No standard appears in the plain text of the statute. No reviewer is required by statute or the EPM to spend any specific length of time on any particular signature. Second, the court takes seriously the directive of the Arizona Supreme Court concerning statutory interpretation to quote effectuate the text if it is clear and unambiguous reading words in statutes in their context and giving quote meaning to every provision so that none is rendered superfluous. In footnotes, the judge writes, the court notes that even if the court had a basis for disqualifying 70,000 ballots under the proportional reduction method prescribed by grounds versus law, given the mathematical computation set forth in her response to defendant's motion to dismiss, plaintiff would not prevail. Plaintiff asserted an argument that the signature verification was the only safeguard against fraudulent ballots being counted. The court disagrees and takes notice of the process employed by Maricopa County to sanitize early voting lists, address verification and voter name correlation to ballot envelopes as Mr. Valenzuela testified. So the argument there is that it's not just the signatures on the ballot and the ballot envelope that must be compared to signatures on file to verify those signatures Maricopa County actually undertakes other measures to ensure the ballots that come in are from eligible and registered Arizonans. And they do that through processes that are all done before the ballot goes out to the voter. They sanitize their early voting lists, which, of course, you have to trust that they did correctly. They verify addresses which you have to trust they did correctly, knowing the history of the canvases that have been done around the country, how many ballots they've found at certain houses, 400 from a 10-unit apartment building, 3,000 from a totally deserted lot. But they did it, and so you gotta trust that they did it right. And voter name correlation to ballot envelopes, same thing. So you gotta trust the process, at least as far as this judge, this decision, this court is concerned. Accordingly, the court will not give weight to Lake's definition of compare to the exclusion of the rest of the statute, which is helpful revisiting here on receipt of the envelope containing the early ballot and the ballot affidavit. The county recorder shall compare the signatures thereon with the signature of the elector on the electors registration record. If the signature is inconsistent with the elector's signature on the elector's registration record, the county recorder shall make reasonable efforts to contact the voter, advise the voter of the inconsistent signature, and allow the voter to correct or the county to confirm the inconsistent signature. So essentially the idea is that inconsistent signatures do not have to be rejected. The county just has to show that some effort was made to to contact the voter to resolve the inconsistency. And because that happened in some cases, we have to assume that that process was applied. And since we are not going through example by example, the process being applied at all suggests that Maricopa County was doing their job, according to statute, even if that job does not guarantee the security and authenticity of any voter's ballot at all in any way. Put another way, the recorder or other official must make some determination as to whether the signature is consistent or inconsistent with the voter's record. The court finds that looking at signatures that, by and large, have consistent characteristics will require only a cursory examination and thus take very little time. Mr. Valenzuela testified that a level one signature reviewer need not even scroll to look at other writing exemplars beyond the most recent one provided if the signatures are consistent in broad strokes. That said, there is an even more important clause ahead. Here's the clause. If satisfied that the signatures correspond, the recorder or other officer in charge of elections shall hold the envelope containing the early ballot and the completed affidavit unopened in accordance with the rules of the Secretary of State. The question after the comparison is whether the signatures are consistent to the satisfaction of the recorder or his designee. So the recorder or the designee gets to make their interpretation. If they are satisfied, then the process is complete and the county wipes their hands clean of the whole thing. Judge Thompson writes... This, not the satisfaction of the court, the satisfaction of a challenger, or the satisfaction of any other reviewing authority, is the determinative quality for whether signature verification occurred. It would be a violation of the constitutional separation of powers for this court, after the recorder has made a comparison, to insert itself into the process and reweigh whether a signature is consistent or inconsistent. Even if the court assumes in the alternative that it must consider, Whether the comparison was adequate, the court finds that Mr. Valenzuela provided ample evidence that, objectively speaking, a comparison between voter records and signatures was conducted in every instance plaintiff asked the court to evaluate. So, again, he's asserting that every bit of evidence they brought in and asked the court to review It was true in those instances that the process occurred. Therefore, it is not the court's job to judge whether or not the process is sufficient to prove that the signatures match, just that the process occurred. It bears noting that this case is based on completely different facts than in Reyes, where the county recorder had done no signature verification whatsoever. Plaintiff may find fault with the process as applied to some number of ballots, but the court finds that the process of comparison did take place in compliance with the statute defeating a Reyes claim under misconduct. While plaintiff did not demonstrate any lack of compliance with statute or the EPM, she did bring in a signature verification expert who testified what he believed to be necessary for signature verification in his line of work but there is no statutory or regulatory requirement that a specific amount of time be applied to review any given signature at any level of review. Given all due weight to Mr. Spikin's signature verification expertise, his analysis and preferred methodology is not law, and a violation of law is what plaintiff was required to demonstrate. Further, Exhibit 47, the chart created by others for Mr. Spikin, depicts his interpretation of data derived from a public records request and was not admitted except as demonstrative to permit him to opine generally. And that was the part of the trial where the defense objected over and over again for like two hours straight. Mr. Valenzuela testified that the final canvas was accurate. No clear and convincing evidence or even a preponderance of evidence contradicts him. And of course it doesn't. The court, having weighed all the evidence, argument, and legal memoranda, and having assessed the credibility and demeanor of witnesses presenting testimony at trial, now enters the following findings of fact and conclusions of law. Therefore, the court does not find either clear and convincing evidence or a preponderance of evidence of misconduct. The court does not find either clear and convincing evidence or a preponderance of evidence that such misconduct was committed by an officer making or participating in a canvas. The court does not find either clear and convincing evidence or a preponderance of evidence that such misconduct did in fact affect the result of the 2022 general election by a competent mathematical basis because, of course, they did not find misconduct according to law in the first place. Therefore, it is ordered confirming the election of Katie Hobbs as Arizona governor pursuant to Arizona Revised Statute 16676. So what do we have here and how should we think of this? Is this clear evidence of another court being corrupted by the regime? Well, maybe, but also maybe not. The judges asked to review whether or not this process was followed according to the statute, because the plaintiff's side, Carrie Lake's side, argued by Kurt Olson, their case was essentially that the process in place is so flawed, so useless and so poorly applied, that it does not constitute a process at all. All the defense went out to do was prove that the process had occurred, and regardless of anyone's dissatisfaction about how the process was implemented or dissatisfaction with the process itself, the process did occur. Therefore, the plaintiff's complaint failed. Now, let's just assume that the judge decided this correctly, and by law, he is doing the right thing. Well, what do we have? We have an election process in place that cannot in any way guarantee the authenticity of Arizona's mail-in ballots. That in itself should be horrifying. But the horrifying part of it rests with the election process in the state less so than it does these courts. Now, Judge Thompson may well be corrupt as hell. Maybe there's a good argument about how this case should have been decided another way. Again, I wasn't concerned about the outcome of this particular case one way or another because the case is going to continue on forward to higher courts, I imagine. It is unavoidable, though, that our election processes are deeply flawed and above and beyond the fact that they are flawed, They are only being followed and implemented in the first place to such a ridiculously low standard of compliance that it's clear the processes cannot in any way guarantee a free and fair election with proper protections of abuses of this system. In fact, the system was put in place and designed this way to allow these sorts of abuses to occur. It's not just that bad actors can find loopholes and ways to exploit systems. It's that the systems are put in place to open up those loopholes for bad actors because that's how the power keeps accruing in the hands of the very same people over the course of time. And they continue to infiltrate. They continue to expand these systems so that all the control can be theirs. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's just a system. This is the system. The system is designed to produce certain results. They tell you about the system. They tell you about the results they intend to produce. You can see the system in action. The system produces the results they tell you the system is going to produce. And then upon examination of the system, you can see that the system is totally insufficient for producing the results it is expected to produce among normal people in the public for the reason the system was put in place in the first place. Average citizens believe that their election systems are put in place by their government to ensure the proper outcome of elections, that every person gets one vote and that vote gets counted the way they cast it. That is what people think their election processes are designed to produce, but they are not. The system is not designed to produce that. If the system was designed to produce that... We would have the simplest election processes ever, one day, in-person, voter ID, paper ballots, hand-marked, hand-counted in small precincts. We don't need machines. We don't need voting centers. We don't need six weeks of early voting. We don't need ballot harvesting. We don't need universal mail-in ballots. We don't need Mark Zuckerberg drop boxes. We don't need mobile voting units that drive around harvesting people's ballots. We don't need what California does, where you can print a ballot out at your house and drop it in a Mark Zuckerberg drop box, and that's that. And we certainly don't need ballot signature verification processes put in place like this one. Every complication of the system takes you one step further away from the simplest possible form of elections. The simplest possible form of elections is the most likely to produce fair and accurate results. So every step away from that, every complication of the system only suggests that some other result is intended. And it is that some other result that the system produces. And let's think about the complications of this process. We know that they accept now, according to this court, they accept ballot signature verification, even when it is done on each ballot, just by pressing a button over and over again, just lifting your finger up and putting it back down over and over and over again. No actual check, no care in the process, no accuracy in the process. Approve ninety nine point six percent of these ballot signatures. Out of 1.3 million ballots. But how do we get to that point? Why do we need ballots to be signature verified? Well, because we have to have mail-in balloting. And if we don't have mail-in balloting, well, then what are we going to do? Have people vote in person with voter ID on paper ballots, hand marked and hand counted in small precincts? We can't do that. We already have a ballot signature verification process in place. What we're seeing is not only systemic multi-level corruption and criminality here in an attempt to undermine not only the states of this nation, but the nation itself. We are also seeing a total abdication of duty by everyone who serves in public office who allows processes like this to be put in place in the first place. This sort of thing, this sort of decision that this judge made should never ever be necessary because no system that governs one of the most critical elements of American life should ever become so complicated and convoluted. And the only way it ever would is if politicians are corrupted and paid off and influenced to put stuff like this in place. There is no person in the world who could possibly think that all of these additional unnecessary processes in our elections are actually put in place to guarantee the accuracy and fairness of our elections. A reporter for the Arizona Sun-Times named Rachel Alexander, who is a former elections lawyer, wrote a long article on the case in the Arizona Sun-Times on Twitter. She noted that The decision is almost embarrassing. She says it's very short, which is rude. And obviously because he's trying to duck criticism. And this is the judge she's talking about. He basically stated there wasn't any misconduct, which isn't even the standard in the main Arizona case on this topic. Reyes versus coming. She wrote, here's the standard for Reyes. In Reyes, The Arizona Court of Appeals did not state that there must be zero signature verification that took place in order to overturn the election. The court said that, quote, where, quote, almost one third of the ballots cast counted without compliance with ARS Section 16550. The trial court abuses its discretion by finding that the recorder substantially complied with the statute to rule otherwise would, quote, affect the result, or at least render it uncertain. The court concluded Miller established that an election contestant need only show that absentee ballots counted in violation of a non-technical statute change the outcome of the election. Actual fraud is not a necessary element. Therefore, the trial courts finding that there was no evidence that any ballots were cast by persons other than registered voters, is irrelevant. So the problem, which people noted going into the trial, was that the standards that were applied were going to be so impossible to meet that this was the only plausible outcome. Now, also in Arizona, the Republican candidate for attorney general last fall, Abe Hamaday, is still contesting his election. This is from today in the Gateway Pundit. Judge in Abe Hamaday's case to rule on new trial within the next couple of weeks. Superstar election attorney Jen Wright says 1,100 voter registrations wrongfully canceled in race called by just 280 votes. From the article by Jordan Conradson, Abe's race against radical leftist Chris Mays was initially called by just 511 out of over 2.5 million votes. However, as the Gateway Pundit reported, a miscount of votes in Penal County discovered hundreds of new votes for Hamaday. Katie Hobbs hid this information from the judge in Abe's first trial, and Mays was declared the winner last December by just 280 votes, again, out of the 2.5 million votes. This newly discovered evidence was, quote-unquote, intentionally withheld by Katie Hobbs and justifies a new trial, argued Hamaday attorney Jen Wright. Additionally, Maricopa did not provide provisional ballot information until after trial information that had it been timely provided, we would have been able to address those problems we found at trial. Jen Wright is the former Arizona assistant attorney general. Wright also told the court they have hundreds of declarations from, quote, people that tried to vote on Election Day and had their ballot rejected. She continued, they were told they were not registered to vote. It turns out with many of these declarations, we have their voting record and history, and we can see when and how it was changed, and it was not by their own intent. It appears that more than 1,100 Election Day provisional voters were, we believe, wrongfully disenfranchised. She told the judge that they interviewed hundreds of voters whose, quote, registration was moved from their county of residence to the county where they have some connection without the voters express knowledge, consent, or intent. This was likely caused by changes to statewide computer systems under Katie Hobbs as secretary of state. Wright told the judge, I think if then Secretary Hobbs had been forthright, you may have granted Mr. Hamaday's request to inspect more ballots before this court made a final determination in this issue of great significance to the people of Arizona. Defendants simply claimed that Hamaday presents no proof that a review of the ballots will show that he won. However, as mentioned above, Hamaday's team has in their possession hundreds of voter affidavits attesting that they were unable to vote due to a wrongfully canceled voter registration. Katie Hobbs in Maricopa County know this, and that is why they hid the evidence during the first trial. As the Gateway Pundit reported, in Maricopa County, where over 50% of tabulators and printers failed the moment the polls opened, Republican voters were turned away from the polls, stuck waiting in lines of four hours or more or forced to vote provisionally because their registration was canceled. Maricopa County rejected 4,849 provisional ballots of the roughly 9,000 rejected statewide. So, more than half of the provisional ballots that we know were filled out by a voter on the day of the election were rejected. But 1.3 million mail-in ballots had their signatures verified at a 99.6% success rate after a review for many of those ballots was done in under three seconds per ballot. It's almost like the people running elections wanted to approve the mail-in ballots but didn't want to approve the provisional ballots. Donald Trump, as you might imagine, is having another busy day on Truth Social He is also discussing election fraud and the machines and specifically Dominion. He wrote this morning, so Dominion gets almost a billion dollars and I, after years of fake news, hoaxes, scams and investigations, am entitled to nothing. Is that really the way it's supposed to work? I don't think so. And speaking of Trump's many legal issues, the Daily Mail today has this headline. Trump classified documents is wrapping up. Special counsel is nearing end of Mar-a-Lago probe and ex-president's allies are bracing for an indictment. The probe into Donald Trump's alleged mishandling of classified documents after leaving the White House is nearing its end, with the ex-president set to be indicted. Special counsel Jack Smith has finished collecting evidence into how confidential presidential files ended up at Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort, the Wall Street Journal reported on Tuesday the newspaper citing people familiar with the matter said that allies of the real estate mogul expect an indictment to be served. Always people familiar with the matter. Now, are those people correct about the expectation of an indictment? It seems absolutely plausible and maybe even likely that we will see another indictment on this issue. And at that point, everyone will think that the issue is very, very serious. And then over the next couple days, people will read the indictment and pick it apart and realize that there's absolutely nothing there. But they argue that the latest legal case will only boost Trump's popularity with the GOP base and could even help their campaign fundraising efforts. Smith has undertaken interviews with every single worker at Trump's luxury home, dubbed the Winter White House, during his term in office. So he's interviewed everybody at (laughs) Mar-a-Lago. That is preposterous. His work examines whether anyone tried to scupper the criminal inquiry or whether Trump illegally held onto documents that he should have turned over to authorities. But it is unclear whether the top attorney has gathered enough proof for Attorney General Merrick Garland to charge the ex-commander-in-chief with a crime in this case. Smith is also investigating the bid by Trump and his allies to overturn the 2020 presidential election result. So that's very exciting. The walls are closing in later again, and it should be within the next few weeks or so that we will get some sort of word About how Merrick Garland's Department of Justice is going to proceed in this case. And it's worth noting that this comes on the heels of John Durham choosing not to indict anyone at the end of his investigation. Now, I know people don't like this and I know people don't necessarily respond well to this theory, but here it is. If you are going to go after the deep state and all of these people in power who are protected by the regime, protected by the media, protected by corporate America and the tech companies and the political parties, the uniparty left and the uniparty right, they will protect each other if the uniparty itself is threatened. Going after those people requires for the villagers out there to understand that they are not being treated unfairly. And unfortunately, since they're never going to look at any of the actual claims in any of this stuff, the only way to ensure them that they are being treated fairly is to treat the other side terribly first. And they're going to root for it. They're going to cheer it on the entire time. They're going to believe that the walls have finally closed in around Donald Trump. Now they've gotten him. The silver bullet that they've been waiting eight years for has finally arrived And now the Trump thing is going to stop, except nobody actually believes it's even going to stop anymore. They just want it now to justify all of the things that they have felt over the years that they have said that they have done and the ways that they have treated people. Donald Trump is going to continue to be the whipping boy for all of this until this whole thing is burned out and goes away. And at that point, then you can start working in the other direction. We are not through that process yet, unfortunately, and I know people have a hard time seeing evidence of this in real life and understanding that this process could be happening because they are frustrated with the delays in justice that we have seen over this time. And I agree that those delays in justice are unfortunate. They are awful for the country and its stability. They're awful for the rule of law. And these ongoing decisions make people feel like they are insane for continuing to believe that justice can be restored in this country. I get it. But if you want to catch the big fish, then you have to be prepared to go through this process first. The villagers need to understand that this stuff can happen and that their side isn't being targeted in particular by that mean old dictator, Donald Trump. This process is designed to get them to the point where they want to see justice in this country, even when it is enacted against people on their side. And you can say that's crazy, but we are watching that process build right now. In the response to the John Durham report, We've seen mainstream media outlets talking about how Donald Trump has been exonerated in full. This actually was an attempt to take down Donald Trump. It was orchestrated by the FBI. And like I said yesterday, that's where they usually leave their focus. But it was also by Hillary Clinton, her campaign, the DNC affiliated law firms, intelligence people around the world outside of America. The attorney general, Loretta Lynch, the CIA director, John Brennan, James Comey, the FBI director, Joe Biden and Barack Obama. People are beginning to understand that those weren't all good guys. There's a lengthy analysis today from the Epoch Times. I'm not going to go through it, but the headline is how much did Brennan, Obama and Comey actually know before the FBI opened an investigation into Trump? So if you're interested in the subject, I would suggest you take a look at this. But the point is, this is getting out there and it's having better reach than it ever has in the past. The baseline facts here have been known by people in our community for a very long time. But the circle of people who now know it continues to expand. And when people say that they are disappointed because Durham brought no indictments, the more salient takeaway is that it is indisputable that all of these people were aware of this effort to undermine Trump's campaign prior to the election, and they stood by silently and allowed it to continue. The villagers ignore this point, and they think that because no charges were brought, that means that nothing was wrong. That is the argument they are using to excuse actual coups being run to undermine this nation's elections and a duly elected president while he was sitting president. Now, yesterday, CNBC ran this headline. Trump faces $10 million defamation claim by E. Jean Carroll after CNN town hall remarks. Eugene Carroll filed court papers seeking very substantial monetary damages of no less than $10 million from Donald Trump in light of recent scathing remarks he made about her at a CNN town hall. Trump's comments occurred a day after a New York federal jury awarded Carroll $5 million in damages for likely being sexually abused and defamed by Trump. Likely. She has said Trump raped her in the mid 1990s in a dressing room of the Bergdorf-Goodman department store in Manhattan. The amended complaint read, Trump's defamatory statements post-verdict show the depth of his malice toward Carroll, since it is hard to imagine defamatory conduct that could possibly be more motivated by hatred, ill will, or spite. This conduct supports a very substantial punitive damages award in Carroll's favor, both to punish Trump to deter him from engaging in further defamation, and to deter others from doing the same. Oh, you got him this time. Now, these are the moments where people who are not Trump supporters, but pretend to be online, will say, Donald Trump needs to keep his mouth shut. Why can't he keep his mouth shut? Why does he keep doing these sorts of things? But the point here isn't that Donald Trump makes his way as easily and smoothly and quietly through these situations as possible. The point is that Donald Trump gets the public on his side as much as possible. The only way to do that is by communicating to people in an authentic way about what's actually happening. And of course, that's what he's doing. He wrote a couple of posts about this on Truth Social. He said, I don't know Eugene Carroll. I never met her. Or touched her, except on a celebrity line with her African American husband, who she disgustingly called the ape. I wouldn't want to know or touch her. I never abused her, or raped her, or took her to a dressing room 25 years ago in a crowded department store where the doors are locked, she has no idea when, or did anything else to her except deny her fake, made up story that she wrote in a book. It never happened is a total scam, unfair trial. He continued, The Carroll case is part of the Democrats' playbook to tarnish my name and person, much like the now fully debunked Russia, Russia, Russia hoax, the 51 intelligence agents, FBI Twitter files, and so much more. It is being funded and tried by Democrat operatives, although this was denied by them, and when they got caught in the lie, the Clinton-appointed judge would not let us use it in trial." time will prove him to be highly partisan and very unfair where's the dress she said she had and donald trump posted this video on truth social a supercut of Egene carroll's wacky statements during her tv interviews
0: against donald no. trump
1: for this why
0: not i would find it disrespectful to the women who are down on the border, who are being raped around the clock down there. But for the women down there and for the women actually around the world. And it was all fairly playful. Um, Oh, it was charming. It was exciting. Remember what Donald Trump was like in 95, 96. On the counter were these fancy lingerie boxes that they used to have back in the 90s. Yeah, you wore lingerie in the 90s, I'll bet, Joy. Well, he didn't suggest it he shouted it he shouted lingerie it. lingerie he may have shouted underwear yeah. I, you okay. know okay
1: were you scared were you no I angry was too, were you... i was
0: too panicked to be scared
1: too panicked to be scared okay
0: totally and i put my life on the line do you think that you're going well hold on a second what do you mean you put your life on the line well people have told me i have to be careful you've gotten death threats i am not looking at death threats i have the idea that i'm going to make him put it on over his pants that was my idea mm-hmm. you see how funny that would be to make him yes. put that on yeah. i guess my question is is could there be any dna i have on no there? idea i do not know if the president ejaculated have no idea lawrence i wish i had said i wish i said i'll tell you my age if you Show me your tax returns.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it would have been would have been Uh, helpful. Well,
0: so I'm holding my handbag, like the the only reason I know I'm holding my handbag is because I discovered it in my hand when I got to the street. The statement
1: that he said, which he's just made, which is she's not my type number one. That was the number one thing. I
0: love that I'm not his type. I'm an archer. I have bows and arrows. You know, yeah, fine. I think there's just too. uh, Never mind. Never
1: mind. I think most people think of rape as a. I mean, it is a violent. Assault. It is not. I think
0: most people think of rape as being sexy. Mm.
1: Let's take a short break. Think
0: of the fantasies. Mm. We've got to take a quick break. If you can stick around, we'll talk more on the other side. You're fascinating
1: to talk to. Is Donald Trump really not supposed to publicly challenge the credibility of this woman, where some court determines based on a case she brought after having the laws in New York changed? So she could bring the case that it was likely, as in more likely than not, that he somehow sexually abused her or touched her, even though the jury, the same jury, decided it was not likely that he raped her. So they didn't believe her about rape. They said, ah, maybe he touched her or something. And then for the defamation, they said, oh, he owes her five million dollars. He's dealing with that legal system and he is supposed to silence himself in public because of her defamation claims. Does Donald Trump seem like he is actually scared of this situation? No. And that's the takeaway. They're going to keep filing defamation cases. Okay, go ahead. He's going to keep appealing them. And there's no way that she can actually prove defamation regardless of whether or not a jury awarded her money in a civil trial, because she can't prove any of the underlying claims. Donald Trump does not have to, and normal people don't have to, sit around and allow awful accusations to be made against them and brought to court against them without responding. Think about the action they're calling for in principle. Someone accuses you of something and you just have to silently take it. The jury decides against you. Based on no facts, really. And you have to silently take it? You have to just go away and never address the situation ever again? Well, there's no sense of justice there whatsoever. We talk about the court of public opinion. That is an old idiom, an old phrase. Well, where is it better to win if you are Donald Trump? In one of these courts that is obviously stacked against you to the point where they will accept cases being brought on new laws? that were promoted by the person bringing the case, cases funded by globalist billionaires. You're not going to win in that court, but you can win in the court of public opinion. And if you continue to win in the court of public opinion, then people will understand that not only is the court making the wrong decision, but the courts in general are corrupted. And that's why this keeps happening. Donald Trump Being persecuted in our legal system in front of the entire country might just be what's necessary for the entire country to finally realize something is very wrong with our court system and we can't keep taking these consequentialist views on everything where we decide, oh, well, there was no election fraud because the courts didn't overturn the election at all or no one committed any wrongdoing. Throughout the Russian collusion hoax, because John Durham didn't bring indictments. Those things are not connected logically. The court's actions are not proof of the underlying claims, one way or another. We were talking about St. George's Day coming up on Thursday. Well, what would have happened if the court did not find Derek Chauvin guilty of murder? We would have seen rioting on the same scale that we saw. After George Floyd died three years ago, think back to the Rodney King verdict and what happened in Los Angeles after that, those riots. The same people who tell us that the court decisions are what determine right and wrong about the underlying claims will still go out and riot and loot and burn down cities if the courts don't do what they like. It is a totally inconsistent principle. And again, unrelated to the underlying claims. Now there's one last Trump legal issue for the day. All sorts of Trump legal issues floating out there in the media today. And it probably has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that Ron DeSantis is expected to announce his candidacy for president tomorrow on Twitter in an interview with Elon Musk and David Sachs. So that is going to be an absolute clown show, but it's probably not just a coincidence that the get Trump effort in the media is going to full volume a day before that. This is Fox News today. Trump to stand trial in March 2024 for alleged hush money payments. Former President Donald Trump appeared in a New York virtual court hearing Tuesday where a judge said Trump will go on trial March 25th, 2024 months before the presidential election, after he pleaded not guilty in April to 34 counts of falsifying business records related to a 2016 hush money payment. Trump has been prohibited from sharing any evidence turned over by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office during pretrial discovery on social media while the case is ongoing. New York State Supreme Court Judge Juan Mershon imposed the protective order May 8th, but stopped short of imposing a gag order. Prosecutors requested the order after Trump criticized Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, Mershon and others. Trump can speak publicly about the case, but can be held in contempt if he uses evidence turned over by prosecutors to target witnesses and anyone else involved in the case. So this, of course, all stems from the Stormy Daniels stuff. And we covered this at length a few weeks ago. Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan District Attorney, came up with a novel legal theory to allow him to go after Trump, just like E. Jean Carroll promoted the changing of a law in New York that would allow her to bring her civil case against Donald Trump, despite the fact that it was well beyond The statute of limitations. They simply got rid of the statute of limitations for one year. They said, hey, everybody has a one year grace period. Bring all the cases you want outside of the statute of limitations. And that's exactly what she did. It's also like how Ron DeSantis in Florida had the laws changed to allow him to run for president without resigning as governor. Just change the laws whenever necessary. If it helps you to get Trump. Now, the Stormy Daniels affair has been denied by Donald Trump, denied by Stormy Daniels, and Stormy Daniels now owes Donald Trump upwards of $600,000 for all of this. But Alvin Bragg has a novel legal theory about how he can get Trump anyway based on these payments, even though the Federal Election Commission already said those payments were not an election violation. For whatever reason, this case will not be tried for another 10 months from now. So it's just going to be out there hanging around for people to talk about and for the walls to slowly close in on. And Trump being Trump responded not long after just had New York County Supreme Court hearing where I believe my First Amendment rights, freedom of speech have been violated and they forced upon us a trial date of March 25th, right in the middle of primary season. Very unfair, but this is exactly what the radical left Democrats wanted. It's called election interference, and nothing like this has ever happened in our country before. And again, imagine us in the before times, before Trump came down the escalator. We would be told by the media that all of these cases are very, very serious And all we would get about these cases is the media's interpretation of what's happening. And maybe some independent journalists going through all of the filings and trying to get all the facts together. And maybe 1% of the country ever sees that reporting, maybe way less than 1%. Donald Trump is changing that and he's changing it for the better. This is necessary. It's necessary that the defendants in cases like these, the accused, are actually allowed to defend themselves in the court of public opinion because they know they can't depend on the courts to accept their defense when those courts are stacked against them. Where is someone in Donald Trump's position supposed to win, supposed to protect himself from these ridiculous claims? The only place he can do that is in the public's mind. And that's what he's doing. And for Trump's future, and the future of our nation, that's the only thing that matters. People actually need to know that the media's interpretation of decisions handed down by our corrupted legal system are not the only standard of accountability and justice in this country. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at i'myourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month, comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com, and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range.
0: Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram messenger app.